Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to the series, How the Bible Came to Be. Uh, thanking you for taking time out this Sunday, uh, which um, I'm hoping will turn out to be a time of learning. Although you may think of it as more of a technical talk. I mean, how the Bible came to be, which is also called canonization. This is not your normal Bible study. Even though it is a somewhat technical in that way, as we record these lessons, I'm hoping that uh, this will actually be a big boost to your faith. I bring you greetings from... Turkey and Greece, where a number of us in North River have just returned from the Biblical Study Tour, which was an absolute blast. Members, We had over 90 members from uh, nearly 20 different countries, and the places we got to see were incredibly faith-building. <coughs> Corinth, uh, Athens, Patmos, Hierapolis, Colossae, Laodicea, Miletus, Ephesus, uh, and maybe I left out a place. But incredible time of fellowship and a chance also to be with sister churches in Athens and Istanbul. So if you're like me, uh, fighting a little bit of jet lag, I know several are coming back from far away. I hope I can keep your attention in this next uh, 30 or 40 minutes. Okay, let's talk about the plan. This was originally billed as six classes, and that's because I was looking at availability from my website, forgot to include a family wedding. So it's actually just five. As you see, today and the next two Sundays, and then we'll have two in December, but uh, we'll change it at the North River website in the bulletin, but in December, just the 8th and the 22nd. But the truth is, I think I can cover the material pretty well in, um, in just five classes. So let me um, lead us in a prayer, and then let's jump right in to our first class. Uh, you've got the notes for that on the paper. After that, we'll have time for uh, some of your questions. And let us uh, begin right now in prayer. Lord, we're drawn here today because we believe in you, we believe in your word, and we have either a strong conviction that it's true, or questions, or at the least we are interested and attracted to the concept of Scripture. Wherever we are on that uh, continuum, help us to listen attentively, and to the extent that interaction is called for, help us to be giving, not self-conscious, uh, but interact as, as a group however we can. We thank you for these uh, these weeks, this series that we can enjoy together, help me to speak clearly, not too fast, not too slow, and I pray that from the youngest to the, all the way to the oldest Christians, everyone will get something, and we ask these and other things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So when you come to a class, how the Bible came to be, very briefly, what were you hoping to learn? What kind of question did you have? Probably your question would be someone else's question. Is there something that was on your mind? And you could just share very briefly. We'll start with the ladies. Why some books are in there and some... Why some books are... And I'm only repeating it because it's being recorded. Uh, why some books are in the Bible and some books aren't. All right? That was mine. And, and Bob, the same thing, which shows, as I, that proves the point. Your question will be someone else's question. That's excellent. Yeah. Who were the people that 
came together and brought it. Brought it. Who were the Who were the agents in this process of bringing the various books of the Bible together to be the Bible? I mean, how did that happen? What was that like? Why are they in the, the specific order they're in? Because yes, that's good. What about the order of the books? I mean, our Bibles have sixty-six books. Some people's Bibles have over seventy books, and the order can be different. And what's with that? Yeah. Why is the Catholic Bible different from ours? Why are the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles different uh, from the Protestant Bibles, at least most of the Protestant Bibles? That is, why do they have those extra books in the Old Testament? Is there anything else you were wondering? Please. This might be a different class, but in the beginning, how does that fit together with the history of the world? Okay, so this is a... You're, you're, this is a question about Genesis. the time flow. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about chronology a little bit, but, but more when the dates are written. Right. But it might be a different class. But one, one fun thing I want to do in 2014 is, is do a new edition of my Genesis book. And I have a section that focuses directly on that. And, and it's, it's more connected than you might think. Because in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is deliberately mirrored in another book. In the beginning was the Word. And in both cases, we have creativity and we have God doing something exciting. Did you have a question? Okay, just one or two more. Um, this, I hope this is going to be really good for helping me to share my faith with people who tend to have, take Great. an intellectual view and think that the Bible is against an intellectual view. Um, you're hoping that you'll get something here you can share with certain of your friends, and I'm hoping as well. And that's an empty chair right there, isn't it? Yes, it is. So there's an empty chair right there underneath that shield, and if someone comes in, please direct them. There's no need for anyone to stand. Maybe just one more. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in just the historical uh, nature of it, like what happened with the, the meetings, the, um, you know, the, the vibe at the time. The history, the meetings, the councils, yeah, the vibe. <laughs> now, yeah, what was the vibe? I'm, think when I, I'm thinking all the classes I've taken in, in the seminaries. I don't know if we had talked about the vibe, but, I, but there were definitely some strong views. All right, well, these are the kinds of, of questions we come, the kind of agenda we have. And, and obviously, uh, this is a huge subject. When I teach church history, I always say, canonization, how the canon of New Testament books, how the Bible, the Old Testament, how it came together, that's the most complicated area within all of church history. And, and so it is a little bit of church history. Tricked you, huh? And to think that in five classes of about 40 minutes each, we're going to even begin, well, we will begin, <laughs> How much we really do, it's just an overview. And if you'll um, understand that, then I'll be encouraged. Okay, moving through uh, the, the notes here. General dating. When was the Old Testament written? Well, and today's class is just on the Old Testament. As you can see, next week we're going to talk about the so-called missing books, the Old Testament Apocrypha, which are really the things written in the period between the Testaments which some Christ followers believe are Scripture. Others say, no way. And others say, they're Scripture, but not as authoritative as the other Old Testament books. We're going to talk about that. And it's pretty interesting, I think. Then in our third class, how the New Testament came together. So, so today is just Old Testament. And then we'll have a class on the New Testament Apocrypha. 
and pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha is a mouthful, it just means uh, books attributed to someone who didn't write them. Pseudo like false. And then Gospels False and True, our final class, will look at the four canonical Gospels compared to the couple dozen other Gospels written in later centuries, which according to people like Dan Brown, you know, got a raw deal. They really should have been included. Things like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Mary, or the Gospel of Philip. Come on in, we still have room, and you're welcome. Okay. So, general dating of the Old Testament. Okay, what did I type out here as I put this handout together? 1000 to 400 BC. Well, that's, that's kind of the pocket when most of this stuff is written. Do you think parts of the Old Testament are, are older than 1000 BC? Well, there are parts that are earlier. But 1000 BC is a time of David. And at that time, apart from the nucleus of the law, that is the Torah, the first five books, there wasn't really very much. Some psalms were being written, maybe a proverb or two. And even if a book of the Bible is written, say, 700 B.C., that doesn't mean that the whole book is from 700 B.C., because they may have used sources that were a thousand years older. Right, I mean, if, if you're writing a research paper, it doesn't mean that every person you're quoting from in your research paper wrote his, his or her book the same year you wrote your research paper. Right, there are levels to this thing. But mo- generally written 1,000 to 400. What happens around 400 B.C.? Or who's the prophet? What period of time is this? Had, had a little time to be in Istanbul. Uh, I think uh, 18 of the members who were on the tour spent uh, one to three days in Istanbul. Well, Istanbul is the modern name of Constantinople. Uh, when they moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Constantinople, when the church and the state became one, and Christianity was forever transformed. Um, and I was going to say something about Constantinople. What was it? <laughs> Well, yeah, but I was talking about the Persian period. What does that have to do with Constantinople? You'll have to answer that question yourself later on. I just have a, a, a residue of jet lag. It's not too much. I'm actually doing pretty well. But the Jews are in exile. They're in exile. Yeah, they're, they're in exile. So the north is taken into exile. It was the punishment for disobedience to the law in the 700s. In the 500s, the south are taken into exile and they're not permitted back to the Holy Land until the late 500s, that is the late 6th century. And that's the intertestamental period. This is the Persian time. Oh, I know what it was. Because in Istanbul, in the National Archaeological Museum, we saw, I mean, it has this incredible collection of artifacts of biblical times. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persian, Hittite. Uh, amazing how it helped the Bible come to life. So, given that Malachi is probably the last Old Testament prophet, and this is around 450 or 430 BC, you see I have a fondness for round numbers. I like round numbers a lot. They're easier to memorize. Um, but after that, the Jews continued to write. We shouldn't think that they stopped writing. Now, if you look at the Old Testament Apocrypha, like 1 Maccabees 4 or 1 Maccabees 9, the writers will say the voice of prophecy has been stilled, or God no longer speaks to us, 
but they still wrote more books. The voice of prophecy was stilled, but the Jews kept writing. I mean, when was the last New Testament book written? Yeah, well, in the first century, the end of the first century A.D. Oh, so did Christians stop writing things at the year 95? Oh, I mean, things are written every, every year. I mean, it says, I mean, right now in our world, about a million new books are published every year. Quite a few of those are in the religious department. So there's no rule that says once the canon is closed, once the Bible's finished, that you can't write anything else. Oh, sorry, it's not inspired. It doesn't get included. But things were still written. And, and to ignore those, well, it's just sad because that, that tells us an awful lot about what was going on. The voice of prophecy was expected to come to return with the coming of the Messiah. And who does the Spirit come on in the New Testament? In fact, he's filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, according to Luke 1.15. It's John the Baptist, who is the last Old Testament prophet. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may be a little confused. It must be his jet lag. He said, Old Testament prophet. But the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is, is that, that system of, of protection and love with expectations for obedience. Like a contract, but that doesn't sound right. It sounds too, too cold or too mafioso. Uh, it's more than a contract, a covenant. It has promises, their expectations. But the old covenant of Judaism is still in force in the New Testament, which is why the apostles are Jews. It's why Jesus was a Jew. Not a Christian, technically. He was a Jew. So, John the Baptist is still in the Old Testament era, and with him, the voice of prophecy is resumed. In fact, it's not just on John. Uh, for a while there, the Spirit is poured out on all kinds of old men, old women, young men, young women. Read Acts 2 if you want to see about that. So those are some things about general dating. Uh, yes, the sources for the Old Testament go before 1000 BC. Some do, but not many. Even those that are set, some of the stories are set very ancient. Uh, think like the flood story. That's set in the mists of you know, the primeval period. But when was the flood story written, or the, the version we have, because it was edited different times? Well, the version we have was probably written in Babylon, uh, probably in the 6th century B.C. You know, because stories can be written long after the actual events. There's no problem with that. Yeah, but they might have made a mistake. Hey, you can make a mistake even if you, uh, you know, write the story tomorrow about what's happening today. So don't, don't read too much into that. But most of the Old Testament written between 1,000 and 400, and then things kind of stop. And then they resume with John the Baptist. Let's move on to number two. How many um, of you are familiar with the Jewish term Tanakh? Tanakh? Well, uh, the Jews definitely know that word. And I'm not, uh, maybe I'm fond of introducing unnecessary words. But this one is actually useful for our, our subject. It really is. Because Tanakh is how the Old Testament is arranged. And I'm talking about the Jewish Old Testament. See, I only have virtual Bibles. Is that a Bible right there under your arm? So if I pick this up, ah, the Old, your Old Testament is arranged in the Greek order. That is, when the Jews took their Hebrew Bible 
and said, wow, we don't understand this anymore. Most of us don't live in Israel. Most of us, we live in the Mediterranean world. We read Greek. We need to get this Bible into Greek. And so, a couple of centuries before Christ, the Jews in Alexandria, in, in Egypt, they, even there, they spoke Greek. They translate the Old Testament into Greek. And the order of the books is different, and that's the order that your Bible, Mr. Nelson, is following. But the Hebrew Bible is in a different order. Now, let me just push the pause button, so to speak. Does that cause a problem? I mean, if you found out that Proverbs should come before Psalms, or if you were alerted that in some manuscripts Ephesians came after Philippians instead of before it, would that rock your world and ruin your faith? I mean, unless there's some theology in the order itself, I mean, is the order itself inspired? I mean, what does that mean? And besides, how many of you read the Bible in order? Well, with the North River reading plan, you're trying. And you can see that that's not really the natural way to read. It's not, the Bible is only roughly chronological. If it were really chronological, then you wouldn't have it so choppy. You know, read three verses from First Chronicles and then jump over to this prophet. It wouldn't be like that. And that's just proof that it's not, strictly speaking, chronologically written. I'm very encouraged that the room continues to fill. Um, accommodate uh, your neighbor as best you can. You can sit in laps as long as it's the same gender person. I don't mind. Okay. Or if you're married to each other. So the Hebrew Bible is in a different order. And it's in three sections. And the first section is the law, which the Jews call Torah. And Torah means law or really instruction. Because the, the verbal, that's of course law is a noun, the verbal form, yara, is to instruct. So it's, it's not so much the law, which I'm laying down, you do this or else, you do that or else. I mean, there's certainly, it's certainly very serious, but it's more guidance. On the other hand, to think the law is just guidelines. Really, the Torah is just guidelines. That's not right either, because the law is your very life. And these are life-giving words. But it's somewhere between our sense of law and the, kind of the, the feel of guidelines. That's Torah. And that is the first five books. Now, of course, most of the law, laws are in Exodus chapter 20 up to the end of Deuteronomy, like Deuteronomy 33. Uh, you could leave out Genesis 1 to Exodus 19 and leave out Deuteronomy 34. But, but actually, even those are, that is law. Even in Genesis, okay, Genesis is not God telling Moses on Mount Sinai, tell the people to do this and that, but there are many principles in Genesis that did apply to the Jews. I mean, one example is the Sabbath. Where is Sabbath first found in Genesis? Creation, chapter 1. God creates it in seven days. Now, Genesis 1 is agreed by most to be poetical, or maybe semi-poetical, somewhere between prose and poetry. It certainly seems to be written that way when you look up close. But it's, it's put across as a seven-day framework. Six days of creation and one day of rest. So you'll find all kinds of, of principles that relate to the Jews 
in Genesis, these are the books of the law of the Torah. The next section are the prophets. Now, the word prophet is Navi. And if you say the prophets, it's Hanavim, Hanavim. So Naviim are the prophets. And that's the second section. And what's the first prophet? Normally, what will we say? I mean, the normal answer people give is the book of Isaiah. But that's not the way the Jews looked at it. They distinguished between the former prophets and the latter prophets. For them, the former prophets started with Joshua. Uh-huh. So the prophets go from Joshua to the end of the prophets, which for them does not include Daniel. For them, the last book of the prophets is called the Twelve. The Twelve Minor Prophets, they just called the Book of the Twelve. Because if you smush them together, you can just barely get it into one book. And you have the prophets. And how are the prophets different to the law? How, what's that relationship between, between Torah and Nevi'im? What are the prophets saying? What's the point? Repent? <laughs> yeah, more or less. But what's the relationship between the two? Do you understand that? It's simply, the prophets are saying, obey the law. <laughs> They're pleading with the people, obey the law. Now, there's a third section, which are the writings. Kathab is to write, Kavim are the writings. And the writings are everything else. And it's, it's more reflection on the law and the prophets. And the, the, biggest, the best exemplar of this would be Psalms, because that's the largest part. But it included Chronicles, it included uh, Daniel, Proverbs, the wisdom literature, and so forth. So you have these three sections in, in the Jewish Bible. And the, since Chronicles is in the writing, the writings, the last book of the Old Testament is not Malachi, it's Chronicles, or what we would call Second Chronicles. So, for example, from the blood of righteous Abel to Zechariah, who was killed in the temple, Jesus talks about the guilt of his generation. He's saying basically from A to Z, from A to Z, from Genesis all the way to Chronicles. Because for the Jews, that was the last book. Now, put these three sections together. T, or Tau, for Torah. Kaf, or K, for Kuthavim. And, I mean, uh, N, Nun, for Nevi'im. And, and Kaf, or K, for Kuthavim. And you get Tanakh, it's an acronym. And for the Jews, that means the Bible in all three sections. And that Tanakh grows. And I want to give you some examples of this. So the, the oldest part, and, and this is, it's all, I'm being very simplistic here, but the law is the core of everything. You've got to get the law right. That's the center. The prophets are there to remind us that our life is in putting God first, obeying the law. And then the writings are kind of the next circle out. If you had, imagine there's three concentric circles. The law, right? The prophets, the writings. The largest circle. Reflections on all of Scripture. But these three sections themselves also grow. So the Bible grows around this nucleus. But even at a lower level, a micro level, each of those sections grows. And so now we're at number three. And let me give you a couple of examples. If you read the law in Exodus, Exodus assumes that Israel lives in tents in the desert generation. They're in the desert. When you go to Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy has Israel uh, 
Well, there are several things that are different. It has Israel living in houses. They did not build houses in the desert, okay? It's been updated. It's been updated for the new situation. It has the place of worship in a central city, although that city is not named. Deuteronomy 17, we know what he's referring to. He's referring to Jerusalem. But in the law, in, in the earlier part of the Bible, you don't really read about Jerusalem, except for that shadowy character, Melchizedek. If you were tuned into AIM yesterday, we talked a lot about him, and we will too in the next class. So, Deuteronomy is very similar to Exodus, but not exactly the same. It's been updated. Uh, the final version of the law would have been written in Babylon. In Babylon, you know, the 70 years where they had some time to do some hard thinking. And I know some of you would say, I didn't get that, Douglas, because... So Jerusalem was destroyed in 587, but Cyrus, the Persian, decrees that they can go home in 539. That's not 70 years. That's more like 50 years. But it's, it's, I think it's calculated differently. The Babylonians took the first wave into captivity in 605. And so if you go from the time that they first were taken to Babylon to the time where they actually got there and were starting to rebuild the temple, which was in 536, you have a 70-year period. Well, if you'd lost your religion, you'd lost your country land, uh, if you weren't executed, you lost your property, you were deported, your faith is just barely hanging on by its fingernails. There's no more temple, because it's been gutted. There's no more sacrifice. Uh, you're, you're in a foreign land where they don't speak your language. And you're wondering about, how faithful is this God? How faithful is God? What about the promises to Abraham? What about David? Wasn't this supposed to be glorious? Weren't we supposed to have a, a king like David, a Messiah who would rescue us? And we're here in Babylon? And Jeremiah is saying, settle down. The 70 years will take 70 years. I mean, it's going to be a long time. You know, Jeremiah 29. What would you be thinking about your faith? And it's not just you. It's your children. They'd have the same... They'd have to think about it too. Because 70 years isn't long enough for you to be coming back from captivity. So what happens in that 70 years? Come on, what would happen to you if you lost everything? Your property, your church, your friendships, those who weren't executed, even then, everyone's put in different places. What would you be thinking and feeling? What would that do to you? Yeah, you're asking some fundamental questions. And let's just be really fundamental. Like, is this all true? Is there a God? Or for them, everyone believed in God. It's like, is this the right God? Because it sure looks like Marduk is more powerful than Yahweh. Uh, you know, Yahweh is the God of Israel. Marduk is a God of Babylon. Marduk or, or Nebo. Or some of the other Babylonian gods. You might be thinking, they seem to have the power. Am I in the wrong religion? Is God faithful? Will He keep His promises? Or uh, when we're in, in tough situations, we ask the why questions. Why is this happening to me? Is this true? Should I really believe the Bible? Is it worth it? The problem of suffering. Why do terrible things happen to good people? Because it's not like everyone was guilty in the exile. And why do good things happen to why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? 
So think of a book like Job. Oh, that means a lot more when you're in captivity. But even Genesis would be read differently. Everything is read differently. And there's, things are disordered. They're chaotic. They need structure. They need foundations and walls and a temple. And that's why you have, you have Nehemiah and Ezra. And, and we need motivation to get it going. Zechariah and Malachi. So when they come back, they're going to be rebuilding. But in this period of exile, there's a lot of thinking going on. A lot of thinking. Um, let me say, in regard to Nevi'im, if you look in Isaiah... I would ask some of you who wrote Isaiah. The normal Sunday school answer is, Isaiah wrote Isaiah. And don't listen to a seminary, because they talk about 2nd Isaiah and 3rd Isaiah. In the seminary, they'll tell you the situation changes from at chapter 40, and that's 2nd, that's Deutero Isaiah. And when I was at Duke, my first seminary, they said, uh, well, then there's Trito Isaiah, which is the very end, 3rd Isaiah. And I thought that can't be, because if there's more than one Isaiah, then, then the Bible's not true, which actually didn't follow. What really meant is that my leaders who told me there's only one author, they would be wrong, and that's unthinkable. <laughs> but look in Isaiah chapter 8. It's just a little thing. You, you could miss this. 8.16, bind up the testimony. Now, see, this is a message that's coming from God for Israel through Isaiah. 8.16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Whose disciples? Whose disciples? Isaiah's disciples. I mean, he had people following him? Yeah. He had Sancho Panza, or uh, Tonto. He had his uh, Cato, or his Robin. I mean, they had people following them who wrote down what they said. So, for, for the Jewish people, it's not a problem if Isaiah was written in different phases. Even some of it not written by Isaiah. It's all attributed to Isaiah. In the same way that if something is in the Psalms, it's attributed to David. Even though if you look at the Psalms carefully, you'll see that a lot of the Psalms, most of the Psalms, were not written by him. Because it says who wrote them. That's by Moses, that's by Solomon, that's by Asaph, that's by another person. Now, let's go to the next book, please. Let's go to Jeremiah. And, and, and we will have time for some interaction in a, in a moment. I, I want to know if, if some of this bothers you. But I'm, I'm trying to just use evidence from the Scripture. This is that, uh, Jeremiah 36 is that, that winter scene where... Uh, the king uh, doesn't really think very much of the, the Torah. And he certainly doesn't think very much of Jeremiah. And God tells him to take a scroll. This is uh, 36.2. And write on it all the words I've spoken to you against Israel and Judah. This is, Jeremiah is in the, this is the period right before the exile. Okay, so this is around 600 B.C. or so. And he writes it. And then, uh, you know, he dictates it because normally the writer wasn't, you know, it's not Jeremiah is the, the writer. The writer is the writer. It's dictated. The writer is actually Baruch. Baruch is Jeremiah's helper. That's verse 5. And uh, there's a, uh, we have the message here. And the, the message is, is discovered. It causes quite a sensation. It's brought to the king, 
in his winter chamber. It's read by this guy, Jehudi, verse 21. The king is in front of the fire, verse 22. Look at this. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot. It's columns because a scroll goes like this. In a book, you'd be ripping out pages, but books weren't invented yet. It's a scroll, so it's column by column. Throws them into the fire. And neither the king nor any of his servants who'd heard these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments, which is what they should have done, because that would have expressed seriousness. And they even begged them, don't do that, but they won't listen. Now, go to the end of the chapter. What did Jeremiah do? So Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah took another scroll gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Uriah, who wrote on it, the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So things are somewhat flexible. He recreates the message. Have you ever lost a file? No. <laughs> I'm talking about a computer file. You accidentally deleted it. You said, oh man, I wasted an hour and a half. But you didn't really. Because sometimes when you have to reconstruct it, it's better. And also, because you did it before, it doesn't take you an hour and a half. You can do it in probably about 22 minutes. At least, that's what I understand. At any rate, the message is the same, but the words are a bit different. And we know that because it says he even added some things to it. But I thought you're not supposed to add to the word. Isn't that what it says in Deuteronomy and Proverbs and Revelation? Don't add to the word. Uh, that's not talking about adding words to the word. It's about adding content to the word. That's what we're, not, we're talking about changing the message. You don't change the message by dropping out one word or misspelling another. <laughs> you change the message uh, when you subtract from the message itself or, or add to it. So the prophets are somewhat flexible. And you'll notice that they're, they're written, these messages are to many different kingdoms, they're written at different times, and that's why it's important to know a little bit of the history. And it's the same with the writings, the Ketuvim. Like if you go to the Psalter, Psalms is currently organized in five books. So after Psalm 41, what do you see? You, you know what I'm talking about? You read Psalms? <laughs> You'll see that, that in 42 we have the beginning of book two of the, of the Psalms. And then there's a beginning for book 3, 4, 5. So the Psalms have been organized into five books. And since Psalms reflect on the Torah, why do you think they chose five? Because the Torah is five books. In other words, it's been organized. But the Psalms are written by multiple people. Lots of people. Even some of them have different versions. Some of them have been edited and kind of processed and changed. And that's okay. Changes in all bad. The Proverbs also are organized. You'll see these are the Proverbs of Solomon, or these are the Proverbs that the men of Hezekiah wrote down. There or, there's organization. I did a class here at North River a few months ago on the Proverbs. You know, Proverbs is, in, in Proverbs, it's, it's centered around important women. Folly is a woman calling out to the people in the town, you know, follow me. But wisdom is also a woman. Not a man. Wisdom is a woman calling out to people. But then you also have the two other women. It's the wayward woman or the foreigner. It's the outsider, the adulteress. Like Proverbs 5, 6, 7. But there's another woman who's the exact opposite of her. We call her the Proverbs 31 woman. The woman of noble character. 
So Proverbs has a structure. This is not just a coincidence. Oh, wow. Two women, a folly and wisdom, and two women, the adulteress and the noble character woman. It's, it's been arranged that way. It's been edited. A lot of the original writers were dead by the time the final version was edited. So what I'm saying is that the Old Testament doesn't just drop out of heaven, it's formed. You have the law, then the prophets, then the writings. But also the law itself morphs. It's updated to a new situation. The prophets are somewhat fluid. They grow, and the writings as well are accreting something like a snowball. The nucleus is the same, but the scriptures are getting bigger and bigger. And finally, something about the incompleteness of the Old Testament. And then I'll take a couple of questions. And we'll, we'll pick this up more in the next class. But the Old Testament ends too soon. See, a, a Jewish person would say, that, I mean, a Jewish person may correct you. And when you talk about the Old Testament, they say, what do you mean? It's the Hebrew Bible. It's our Bible. It's not old. It's the only one. But here's the problem. The Old Testament itself says there will be a New Testament. Where? Well, different places, but most famously Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 8 talks about. But Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, it says there's going to be a new covenant. There's going to be a New Testament. Covenant and testament are the same word. So if there's going to be a new covenant there will be new scriptures. Because the first covenant involves scriptures. You have to get the terms written down. You've got to get things in writing to be understood. There's a new covenant. There's going to be new writing. Here's another reason. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, ends with suspense. In the original order, it ends with chronicles. And what's happening in chronicles? Cyrus says, whoever wants to go up, can go up. He's permitting them to return to the land and make a new beginning. The end. Wait a minute. Was there a new beginning? Because it, it seems like we're still in the middle of the story. Or, let's take the Greek order. The, the order of the Old Testament books that, that our Bibles probably follow. It ends in Malachi. Now, how does Malachi end? It says that a figure like Elijah is going to come and do some house cleaning the spiritual house cleaning, and then the Lord Himself will come to the temple. So Malachi ends saying that this herald, this messenger will come. We know it's John the Baptist. He'll come, and then God Himself will come and visit Jesus. But He hasn't come yet. So the Old Testament sets us up for the New Testament. It's incomplete without it. And i give you one other example. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says there'll be another Moses, a second Moses. Someone else who will give the law and lead the people and do miracles. And you better listen to him when he does come. And then several times in the New Testament, like for example Acts 3 with Peter, we see that that second Moses is Jesus. He also was on the mountain and he also is laying down the law and you better listen to him. So the Old Testament is actually incomplete. Not that we need more Old Testament books, but that we need a New Testament. Okay. Question or brief comment? Um, I have a two-part question. So, 
We know about the councils for the New Testament. We know about the councils for the New Testament. Right, or we might. Um, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, who and when did they get together? For the Old Testament, who? How did they get together? Uh, because of the time, let me just give you one small bit. We talked about the the crisis of faith that the Jews were thrown into when the temple was destroyed. Well, it happened to them again. Because the rebuilt temple was still there when Jesus ministered. It was actually still being expanded in a program started by Herod the Great. But 587 B.C., Babylon, corresponds to 70 A.D. Rome. Because when the Romans destroyed the temple, once again the Jews had to come to terms. What are we doing? And they had meetings. They met in Tiberias, a a town uh, in Galilee on the Mediterranean. They met and they discussed the books of the canon. And should should we have these apocryphal books or not? And what do we do with these Christians? They had a meeting. Most scholars say about 90 AD. And there was the last meeting where they decided just these books, just their uh, 24 or 22 books of the Old Testament. Remember, they count 12 as one, and First and Second Chronicles as one book, and so forth. But it's exactly the same books that we have, 90 AD. Was that it? Okay. One more? Please. Brief, brief, it has to be very brief, though. Yeah. In, in my own study and research... I'm sorry, that's too long. Let's take another question, please. No, no. Yeah, yeah. The question? Yeah, it appears as though... Um, the Genesis story in particular is from oral tradition. Um, I was just wondering if you could speak about that. It's a question about oral tradition. Um, before things are written, in many cases, the tradition is oral. Because these guys who would follow the prophets would make copies or they would make copies mentally, like in the cortex, they would remember what's going on. And many of the stories were passed on uh, generation to generation, father to son, before they were written to scripture. And the same thing happened with the Gospels. So that's, that's part of the process. It's, a mix, it's not just people writing on uh, bits of paper, which of course wasn't invented. Well, maybe the Chinese invented it, but you know what I mean. It was written on paper, but things were uh, spoken and memorized in that way. So I hope this is of interest to you. Today we've only looked at the formation of the Old Testament. What about those so-called extra books, the Apocrypha, which appear in the Bibles of approximately 1.5 billion people? How come we don't think that those are Scripture? Or maybe they are. But that's what we'll be looking at next Sunday from 9 to 9.45. Thank you for being here. God bless you.